0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Owen. And uh, we're very excited about um, having a conversation with you this interview. So I thought we could start out just by uh, you giving a brief background of how you, you know, got into consulting and where your uh, history in your career led you to authoring Continuous Architecture and Practice with Murat and Pierre.
1: Sure, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's very nice to be here. Uh, Yes, my name is Owen Woods. Uh, Today I'm the CTO of a company called Indove. It's about eight thousand of us, and we build lots of software for other people. So we're a software delivery company. Um, but uh, I, I've been in Dart for about six years, and I've been doing this quite a lot longer than that. So yeah, I've I've got a bit of a backstory. So uh, I graduated um, back in 1990, that long ago, um, uh, with a degree in computer science, and then um, I worked in the products industry for uh, over ten years. So I worked for people like Group Bull. We worked on a product called Tuxedo, which is still in the Oracle Prize book today. I worked for Sybase for a period. And I also worked in the security, the digital rights management industry. Um, And then uh, that took me to California. I lived in Silicon Valley for a while. Uh, And then uh, I returned back to London. And then I moved into the finance sector which was completely strange to me at the time because I'd always worked in the tech industry. Uh, but I worked for, uh, again, over 10 years, um, very happily for a number of large organizations there, building large software applications. Before that, I'd always built the system software. So I moved into applications um, and started worrying about, much more about the kind of things that, you know, your specialization, DDD is into, you know, I think we're worrying about the centrality of data and how important it is to understand the domain concepts as well as well the as, as well as the technical ones. Um, and then I left that uh, about six years ago now, and um, I joined Dava as their CTO, which is which is great. And I've I've been been there since. And at Dava, I lead the technical capability side of the firm. So uh, I always have to stress I'm not responsible for the email system, but we have a very capable CIO who looks after that. But uh, I'm responsible for the skills we've got, um, what professional disciplines our people are in, what skills they have, how we deliver to clients, all those kind of concerns. Um, and I've been doing software architecture for quite a long time. Uh, I wrote my first book with a colleague of mine, Nick Rosansky, back in 2005, Um, we did a second edition a few years later. And then I met first Murrah and then Pierre, and they were getting ready to do a second continuous architecture book. And I'd actually been thinking about very similar ideas about how we make architecture more continuous. So it started off, as I recall, as a promise to write one chapter, and quickly uh, spun into me um, joining them. in the author team, and so I co-authored the book with them, and so that's kind of how I got to here.
0: We, um, it's interesting how people get to a place um, in time, you know, with their experience, and it's good to know that. So in your work at Endava, um, trying to think of maybe the best way to say this, there's there's, uh, no doubt a form of strategy in the approaches that you take um with your your work in architecture and other disciplines at endava but how does your work relate um around the continuous architecture
1: book Mm -hmm. sure so we have an overall arching delivery framework, as we call it, called TEAM, the Indava Adaptive Method, and it, if you like, contains our collected wisdom. So the company's been around 20 years, so we've delivered lots of projects, and it has various aspects to it, including how we interact with the client to make sure that everything is transparent and the client expectations align with our delivery, and it deals with our engineering practices, and it you know deals with um, how we go about organizing our work as well, what people today call an interaction model, or people of our age used to call a process. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, in there, uh, one of our professional disciplines is architecture. Um, and architectures it's been part of Indava since there was an Indava, really. It started off, really, as an architecture consultancy. So we have uh, a professional discipline for that, lots of people working in it. And they've been doing it, many of them have been doing it a long time. But one of the things that's been happening is that um, I think Dava and in the wider world, you know, as we've been digitizing, we're starting the the way we go about building systems is changing. You know, you'll remember years ago we used to have to make a lot more di- you know, design decisions up front, because they were very hard to change later. Um and we, you know, used to build a lot more before releasing it, whereas now we release you know, the smallest thing we can, we try and get feedback, and a digital platform is perfect for that. It gives us a constant feedback of usage information. And so people who design and also other disciplines test um, software have had to think again about how they go about their work. And that's really, I think, Darwin led us to um, encouraging our architects to think less about making, sort of doing lots of design, lots of structures up front and more being there, leading the team's design thinking through the whole process. And that inevitably leads you to thinking, well, I need to do this all the way through the life cycle because I don't know enough upfront front to make lots of decisions. I can only make some initial decisions now. And as I learn more about my domain or my users or um, uh, where the revenue is, then we can start refining that and making better decisions. And so that sort of led us very naturally from, I suppose, maybe... Before I joined, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, when the company's architecture approach was much more like stuff Nick and I described in our first book. It was, um, of course, involved through the whole life cycle, but a lot more thinking up front and a lot more developing traditional architectural views. And it's led it to today, I think, we're much more having architects involved in projects all the way through and viewing their work much more as a stream of decisions to be made when those decisions need to be made and whether they've got the maximum information to make them. So the continuous architecture book's not something we've officially sort of spread around the company, at least not yet. Um, But it's very much, it reflects the way that our architecture practice has been mutating over the last four or five years in response to the kind of work we're doing. Nice.
0: Um, Now, Andava is not what I would call a small company at all, but are you known as a small or a medium-sized consultancy? Isn't it around 5,000 employees well, or is, is it 8,000? 8, 8, 8, yeah. Good so yeah. It, to me, I mean, that's like, wow, that's a large consultancy. But compared to others, it's kind of a medium Either. or something, right? I don't know.
1: Exactly. It all depends who you compare us with. So, you know, to to name names, I think Accenture is 400,000 people. So, you know, compared to them, we're pretty small. But yes, a lot of people we compete with are a lot smaller than us. Uh, I mean, there's an awful lot of delivery companies in the five to six, 700 people um, area, which, um, you know, we Darwin passed up a while ago, we're obviously a lot bigger than that now. So, I mean, that comes with great benefits. You know for us our clients and our employees and that we can take much bigger pieces of work which, so we can take on more it's more interesting for us we can do a greater variety of work but of course we've, one of the problems is we try and you know make sure that people feel valued and they feel part of indava and they feel very much part of the sort of indava family whichever project they're working on we've got to be careful the culture kind of scales with the company that's one of the things the company's working on really hard now is how we how we build culture having you know shared delivery frameworks like team and you know having shared understandings about how for example architects go about doing their work in a continuous way they're quite an important part of that so that there's a feeling that there's an indava way even if not every detail of it is written down there's, there's at least shared principles and philosophies that right across the firm and all of our different delivery units we have many um you, you can find commonality between how people work
0: yeah i think too that there is a challenge in obviously in sort of disseminating continuous architecture through um, thousands of architects or, or software developers, but um, you also have a much more manageable case than some of these very large consultancies where maybe vice presidents don't even know each other, you know, kind of thing. And and uh, I mean, I, you know, that, that kind of huge um, organization. So, I, you know, h- how does that work when you're just trying to like get get the message out to everyone? Is it are there internal classes or? Mm-hmm.
1: That's how our professional disciplines work. Actually, is that so? We have a you know, professional group. We call it a discipline for the architects, and there's one for the developers. Uh, I mean, there's no implied hierarchy. I mean, there are people of the same grade in development as in architecture, they just have different specializations. With the same one for people who are, we call application management. So there people are experts on CI, CD, you know, operational support, deployment pipelines, all that stuff. And we have infrastructure people and many more creative services and others. When we're trying to um, evolve our practice, which is something we have to do really all the time, it's the disciplines are key to doing that. And so for how our architects work. That's my group head of architecture is Christine uh, uh, Chris Cooper Bland, um, and um, you know she will. She's constantly looking into the outside world as to how do people go about doing architecture. What's changing? What are the new trends? And she's working with. Um, her architectural leadership team who are the local head architects in every um, geographical location to talk about what what should we be adopting, what are we missing, what's going well, what's not going so well, what common problems are you seeing? And they they have a knowledge base actually um, on, on a wiki, on the confluence internally and they're constantly adding to that, taking stuff out of it that's not working. Um, and then the local heads of architecture work with their teams of architects who are in their, um, their centre to work out what it means for them and how to adopt it local we find this federation works really well because having a sort of single central edict which is here's how you're going to do it just for us doesn't work it doesn't work culturally but also there's a lot of variation between our different delivery units in terms of their culture and location the work they do and It varies between projects and clients so that sort of federated approach of here's what we here's what we're trying to achieve here's how we think we should be going about it to achieve it and then disseminating that into the sort of unit level, and then the units working out what it means for them and their projects works well, because there's alignment on what we're trying to do and broadly how we do it, and the detail of what that means for us is worked out at the right level, but people are much closer to the work.
0: And you probably get a lot of good feedback uh, coming you know, back up from the units that helps you kind of shape things. So it's good.
1: We do. We get no no shortage of... <laughs> straightforward, transparent feedback, <laughs> which is great. I mean, that's the Dava family is that we always try and make sure that people know what we're thinking. And you know, we do that internally as well. We're, yeah, we're, we're quite direct in, in terms of communicating back to each other.
0: So even beyond architecture, um, there are other factors, practices that you have in Andava. What are What's the kind of thinking around uh, making client projects successful with certain factors or or processes or uh, techniques and what are the things that you like to avoid
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's a great question there's there's so many potential ones aren't there i'm sure you see this in one of your consulting engagements because you deal with a very wide range of clients i'm sure um some of the important ones for us are very clear goals that we share with the client and we've all got the same goal because um, it can be very very common we've, we work with even quite large clients or maybe it's particularly large clients is that there's quite a few people stakeholders you like who care about the outcome of a piece of work but they've all got slightly different view of why it's important and trying to just- Fill that down to a set of shared goals that the team can really get hold of and and decide that they're going to deliver against. That's really important. Product ownership is part of that. that, um, Product ownership is something that a lot of people find very difficult. A lot of organisations are working at how do they get this new skill for the digital age into their companies because they used to write a requirements spec and they felt very comfortable doing that, handing that over. But actually, these days that's not really the way we work. So um you know things like product ownership are important. And also, you know, level of executive sponsorship. Um I know you work at that level of many of your your know, clients is that you have to you have to really have the very top people bought into the whole approach. And you know, we find the same is that you've got to go high enough that everyone in, on the client side and everyone on our side is quite clear that this is the goal. <laughs> There's no debate about what we're trying to chase. And once, once we think we are clear, and you know, we spend enough time with stakeholders to understand it. We're big believers in cross-functional teams, and um, it really, whether or not the client already does that, we're, we always try and build cross-functional teams and help them build cross-functional teams if necessary. Because then you've got you know small pods of people, your Scrum teams, as we call them, um, uh, or pods or whatever your organisation calls them. But you've got small teams who are empowered to go and get stuff done, and they've got all the skills they need in the team to get stuff done and that we find that with clear goals well-defined pieces of work um a lot of discipline around prioritization backlog management that really helps to set teams up to know what they're going to do make sure they've got the skills and the um, accountability to get it done and then work together to get it done um the big anti-pattern that we see is where you have know, a number of organizational units have to come together to deliver a feature. Because then it's always someone else's fault why it's three months late and it doesn't seem to do the right thing. Uh, and that that's quite demoralizing for everyone really, because it doesn't it seems like no matter how much I try, I'm not actually gonna make this successful. So, you know, I just won't try that hard. Whereas in a cross-functional team, in one sense it's a little bit, I suppose. Vulnerable. You know, there's nowhere to hide. The team is accountable, but on the other hand, the team's also empowered to like get the job done. And everyone, you've got the mix of skills in the team that you can go and pair with someone else to get a problem solved. So I mean, that's that's very liberating. So, yeah, we we are big believers in cross-functional teams. It just sort of leads us to sort of DevOps type ways of working. We think that agile and DevOps fit together very well, and uh, they really help link the whole process up from someone having an idea through to it actually delivering value in operation
0: from a sort of DDD perspective um, what i find and have found for uh, years is that when a team is obviously within the, the 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 organization that is delivering the software there's there seems to be very regularly um i mean i don't want to give some percentage like 90 something percent, but it's way up there where there's sort of this, um, you know, the, the business doesn't listen to us as developers, right? So a development team says, "We, we need this. We, the, the business doesn't listen to us and especially in training or when we get an opportunity to actually be with the business, I find that the developers actually don't want to talk to the business. And given the opportunity to talk, they say, no, 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 we got this, you know? So it, it's sort of this strange, like you said, sort of finger pointing, but it's the business, you know, it's us against them as in development and, and the business. And I think you've got a, a very good advantage in going in because you're kind of a, a neutral party, so to speak. I mean, obviously you have something to get done. You have uh, and you know, uh, um, an agenda, I guess, in a good way that you're presenting to the um, to the business, and you're saying these are the things we think need to change. But you know, how, how do you see that working out in the company versus consultants coming in and really wanting to engage? Do the do the teams do the organizational teams then learn from that?
1: Do you think? Yeah, pretty. Pretty often, actually, I mean, this is often one of our selling points, which is we're not going to come and tell you what to do. You know, as we slightly just specifically say, the agile consultancy teach you how to move post-it notes around and then disappear. You know, we're actually going to be delivering software with you. you to to shoulder. Um, we tend not to mix too much the teams. We tend to put the teams side by side so that um, the client's got teams and we've got teams, but they act as one group of teams all you know, probably off one backlog. And that works really well because our teams have done it before um so they're pretty comfortable in their working practices the client teams often when we find those resistance they're just uncomfortable and they don't feel supported and they're a bit nervous that something's going to go wrong because they've never done this before and you know sometimes there have been bad consequences for things not getting delivered so they're understandably a bit on edge about the new way of doing it so it's really good to have a team just Sitting over here, humming away, kind of delivering stuff in the new style, and it, it allows the the client team to sort of look over the wall, so to speak, and say, "We don't really understand why we're doing this ceremony. What, what, what is this retrospective thing for? Or why do we do a stand up?" And our team go, "Oh, well, because without it, this won't happen." And oh, light bulb goes on. Yeah. Oh, right. I hadn't really thought of that you know stick with it for a few more sprints you, you'll see it's it you know it will start to become useful and so they go back and you know try and sure enough it becomes useful because actually it's it's in the context of a you know a, a project a set of teams that are, that are working well the other thing as you say is that we're, we we don't have lots of organizational history in those cases um and so we can come in and perhaps say things that are rather difficult to say if you've been there for a number of years and you know you've got all the personal relationships so i think that that that's another side effect of bringing in um, outside teams for at least some of the time.
0: Yeah, so it's sort of like your your teams lead by example, but without stating we are leading, right? It's it's exactly. they they simply it's leading by yeah. doing
1: rather than yeah. Good. leading by telling.
0: Yeah. So I imagine then that your delivery approach has changed over the years. Um, how do you do that?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I mean, I think even over the last few years, we've seen a lot more move to something meaningful in terms of digital we're building a lot more digital platforms for companies than we did I mean before we were building applications and they were useful but um today we're much more building you know cloud first API enabled platforms which they can actually run part of their business on for both internal and external counterparties so so that's something we're, we're seeing change quite a lot and that's led us from I think probably only five years ago we were we weren't Uh, I wouldn't say it was a transactional relationship exactly, but it was more a, here's a problem, here's some software we need built, can you build it? Um, That's that, thanks very much, that was very good. Well, here's another problem, could you build that bit? To now much more thinking in terms of products rather than running a project, Uh, running a sequence of projects, it's actually, well, we've got a product here, this this platform is a thing that's going to last indefinitely, we hope, because it's cost a lot of money and it's providing value. Um, And, you know, we work with the client to, own it with them so that then um, they need not use us forever. We never try and make them dependent on us. But if as long as we're there, we try and sort of have joint ownership of it so that we're thinking much more about it as a long term uh I suppose it's a long term asset we're trying to manage with the client to chase chase the most value at any point in time, rather than saying, Well, there's a project and you want this thing done, so we'll do it and hand it back to you. And that's been quite a big change for for us, but it's been a a big change for many clients to think about technology as um, as a centre that produces products, as opposed to a machine that churns out projects. Um, and they've had to learn a lot of new skills and get new people who who can think in that way. And we train lots of people. There've been a lot of a lot of books read in a lot of our clients about how to move to a you know more of a product-based mindset. Um, that's certainly something that we've we've seen. Um, and generally we're doing more, and I think because people are having to move from historical, dare I call it legacy or heritage, IT applications to digital platforms, we're doing a lot more uh, advice and assessment. So we're, we're looking at application states. We're trying to help people understand what it is they need today as opposed to what they've got and helping them work out the disposition of their existing applications and you know, what needs refactored, what needs rebuilt, what perhaps needs retired, You know. What does the new set, um, set of application platforms look like? And then try and help them evolve what they've got to that point. And that's something, again, that we've seen a lot more demand for. Because I think people have been in fairly steady state for quite a while. They either implemented packages or they built custom software. But it was a very project-based approach and, you know, they had what they had. And now they're really having to be much more dynamic and reactive. And they're needing software that works in a different way. Thank goodness from our perspective—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's, it's much, much more valuable stuff to build. Stuff that's compartmentized and API-driven and flexible. Um, and and um, yeah, we're seeing that as a trend too, and the kind of problems people are bringing to us.
0: Yeah. So, in the subtitle of your book, "Continuous Architecture um, in Practice," uh, architecture in the age of agile and DevOps, right, isn't something like the subtitle. So the the Agile and DevOps are really tied into that theme of of adjusting and the delivery approaches, right?
1: Precisely. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the fact that both are uh, both are highly adaptive approaches. Obviously, Agile is more based on iteration. DevOps is generally more based on on lean thinking, but, you know, the two kind of have to come together in the middle and, you know, work that out between them. Uh, but the thing that they share, well, some of the principles they share are the fact that we always know more in the future than we know now. It's about taking things uh, in a very incremental iterative way. It's about learning by doing. It's been very intentional about how you gain more information as you go through the lifetime, the life cycle of, of a software platform. And that's why, software architecture, much as it's, you know, very valuable all the same, it it, it has to reinvent itself compared to where we were 10 years ago, when we used to try and do an awful lot of thinking up front, we've no longer got uh, environment that works in because we don't know so much up front because we tend to ship much earlier and learn from stuff that's in production. And also um, trends like um, cloud computing and trends like um, microservices or just service-based computing. then We've got an awful lot more parallel teams who are all making decisions independently. So if you've got some central person or group of people trying to control all the decisions, that just sort of grinds to a halt. So that's you where know, that's where up in Pierre started, you know, five, six years ago with their thinking and where I independently and other people at Elcher Port at CGI, George Fairbanks, who's now at Google, you know, a lot of people have been thinking about these ideas. How do you make architecture relevant in that kind of environment where you can't do it all up front? And these ideas have kind of morphed into what we're starting to call continuous architecture.
0: Interesting. And just to point out too that um, Pierre and Murat work for very large organizations and uh, serve as I think chief architect, or Pierre is at the moment retired, but still kind of doing some consulting and training and so forth. But Murat is still very involved in um, that kind of development. And so I, I just think in reading the book, people get to see into the practices within very large organizations and consultancies who support them. And it, and Um, so I think it's a a really well-rounded, uh, group of authors.
1: Yeah. Good. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. When we came together, we found we had a lot in common, but also enough difference in our experience that we brought different perspectives to it, which, which we found very useful.
0: What do you think, you know, given that you have this, uh, um, group of people who are looking out in the industry and, and seeing what practices are, let's say emerging, um, and that you have a knowledge base on this, and you're trying to, you know, not only trying, but keeping uh, units up to date on, on these practices that will be adopted. So where do you think you're you're going in the future with this in the next few years with emerging themes around the industry?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's always hard to tell the future, isn't it? I should warn you, I'm a very bad futurologist. I have a long long history of getting that wrong. But <laughs> um, uh, I think DevOps done properly, um, as I like wow. to say. I mean, I think we are with DevOps, we were with Agile five, six years ago. Where lots of people are talking about it, but actually we're not seeing a huge amount of great practice and people are still learning how to do it. I think DevOps is going to evolve continually in the next two, three years as more and more organizations come to it and find out what works for them. Um, something we're seeing is um, a lot more interest in security. Um, and this is great for me, uh, from my perspective, because I've been involved in software security quite a long time. And until five or six years ago, if you gave security talks conferences, you used to get, you know, eight people in the front row who were all security specialists. No one else uh, nobody else used to come. nobody else used to come, excuse me. Um whereas now, you know, you actually fill the room with people because security is becoming important to people. And I think people like um um and Verizon and others who are doing uh, information breach reporting uh, every year, are starting to make it very clear to senior technology and business managers that security is something they have to take very seriously. It's quite heartening for people like me who are from a security background. We're now seeing people asking about that very early in the um, delivery lifecycle about what are you. What is your security approach? How do you approach it? How do you integrate it in? Uh, What are your key practices for security? So we're seeing that's something which we used to really, to be honest, offer us something for bolt-on. It used to be the standard software delivery approach, and then we bolt on more security practice uh, for certain clients. So what's great now is more and more clients are asking for it to be integrated right through, and that's very positive, I think. Um, The other thing we're we're seeing is that um, the kinds of, uh, the kinds of environment our platform's running are uh, are evolving and changing. I mean, a few years ago, I suppose IoT started to become a bit more mainstream, both consumer IoT and industrial IoT, now seeing edge devices becoming um, quite important for certain kinds of, for example, for lots of retailers starting to invest in quite, you know, sort of ruggedized, quite sophisticated edge devices for their branches. So we're starting to see, I think, um, much more interesting and varied platforms our software runs on but also sources that our applications are expected to consume data and events from um was before it used to be a fairly predictable subset of things uh-huh. now systems of all kinds of things drones sending them position data or they have uh, you know in the logistics industry they're starting to track all the machinery and all the containers and they're even starting to track the goods um when we're dealing with um with things like mobility people can now routinely track where you know vehicles and devices are, um, we're starting to see um, sometimes slightly creepily um, quite a lot, large amount of tracking where personal devices are and how they're used and predict patterns in them. So um, I think IoTs come from something which is very industrial, quite centred on industrial machinery, to being something that's much more pervasive and is starting to stretch some of our thinking and our technology into how do we bring that more into mainstream systems. And the other trend, which would be of uh, news to no one, but we are starting to see much more of his how data and AI is kind of moving out of being data and AI and just being applications. Um, up to now, we've been doing data and AI work for years, but uh, I always commented to our head of data that it, was, it always seemed a bit strange. We had data projects and then we had projects, but the projects all had a lot of data. They just weren't data projects. So there was never analytics, none on them There was no thought of using predictive analytics or machine learning to understand the patterns in the data. And that's changing as well. And we're now seeing more and more clients um, expecting that because they have a large database just of straightforward transaction data, but they realize that there's potential there to learn more about their business and their clients. And, and maybe the competition, they're starting to expect more and more to be done with the data rather than just processing it, which is what you know, we've always historically done with it.
0: Yeah, well, you can't predict the future. None of us can, but I think you're, you've are you chosen three really ideal candidates for succeeding in the future. I would think of them as being strategic to a consultancy, and it's not only like that you specialize in Security and you do specialize in security, but you can bring the whole game. You know, you you bring the the, the well-rounded uh, capabilities and IoT and um, and of course analytics. Traditionally, let's say analytics or AI or machine learning have not been viewed as business capabilities. They've been viewed as like, well, yeah, reporting and here's some some interesting information that we've brought up out of the depths of, you know, data relations and so forth. But um, I would think that, well, I I think anyway, that some companies to some companies, um, AI and machine learning, a la analytics is a business capability, or at least it, it addresses a very direct business capability. I just wondered, you know, uh, unplanned uh, question, I guess, but how do you see that working out? Do you see the, the um, AI and machine learning as actually introducing new lines of business, I guess?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I think there's two things that happen. One is there are certain companies, um, I guess, classical people like Uber, you know, that they probably wouldn't really exist without enough machine learning to make their uh, their whole logistics side work really efficiently. And then there's people, um, I don't know, you know Cardo in the UK would be an example of that. They're, they're, a, um, they're a, uh, a retail logistics company that both delivers groceries themselves, but also sells their technologies. And in fact, they've been very successful selling to large North American uh, retailers. And they're people who are kind of founded on Using AI, it was part of their original proposition. But then I think you've got all the people like you know the credit checking agencies or the existing logistics companies or even the big banks, uh, insurance companies in particular, who realise that actually they could create new businesses because of the huge, rich historical hoard of data that they've got. If they could unlock that by adding, you know, generically they always say by using AI, and that's a bit of a catch-all term. But what they mean is, as you say dragging inference out of that data in a way that wasn't really very easy to do a few years ago. I mean, a few years ago, it all had to be put into a very specialist, rigorous, clean data warehouse and then run some very complicated statistical software on it that actually none of the business people felt very comfortable with. And now, there are visually-based tools that allow them to explore data they're often now building data engineering groups that allow them to clean the data for the business people to use. So yeah, it's definitely something I think businesses are seeing as, or certainly forward-looking businesses are seeing this potential that they could create whole new business lines based on the data that they hold.
0: Yeah, and and probably, I don't know if it goes without saying, but it seems like uh, a very popular search engine <laughs> like that owns a almost all of the industry search engine business, that's been machine learning from the beginning. I don't know if the, we need to say AI or whatever, but I mean, you know, bringing together concepts and then being able to serve up ads that, you know, that, that are very on spot with the searches being done, whether or not you like that is beyond, you know, this discussion. It, it is definitely machine learning.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I remember the days when AdWords first came along, and it was very obviously a pretty simple pattern, matcher. And then over the years, they started applying machine learning to it. I mean, I think they were one of the first companies to really do machine learning at huge scale and to crack the fact that with enough relatively cheap compute, relatively cheap memory, but the right approach, they actually could use machine learning at massive scale. Um, They were one of the very first to be in there, along with the... um, the uh, big blue social network, (laughs) who were also very early to realise that there's an awful lot of patterns which they can uncover, which allow them to build a more compelling experience for their own users. So I agree. I I don't think either of those was born on the AI kind of platform, but both of them realised pretty early that they pioneered using it at scale to dramatically improve a product or an offering that, that they had. And I think we see it now in sort of more, if you like, traditional industries, they're they're making the same realisation that what the internet hyperscalers did uh, five, ten years ago, they could now start doing themselves because they've also got very valuable data sources, uh, data stores that their competitors can't quickly replicate, which are unique to them, which definitely contain a lot of insight if you can extract it.
0: Yes. So let's shift gears just a little bit Um, beyond the work that you do as a CTO, who else is, you know, anyone else that you kind of follow closely in software architecture, various approaches and how they work?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, so in the software architecture area, I mean, I'm quite involved in that world. I mean, I follow quite a few people. I mean, Simon Brown is someone who I really like the way that he relates to developers and what developers really need from software architecture. I mean, he's I know him quite well, and you know, we've done a bit of work together. He's definitely somebody who I uh, really like the way that he. He goes about reaching development teams and someone else who's you know done really good work in that and other areas of software architecture too is George Fairbanks. I mentioned earlier who's, um he wrote a book, Just Enough Software Architecture. Um and, you know, George is again really good at relating the abstract as you know aspects of software architecture. You know, he's he's got a PhD in it, but he can he's very good at linking to teams. I'm always kind of inspired when I'm trying to work out how to make something something that which developers really relate to. Him. How would George and Simon go about it? And um people at Elcher Port at CGI. Um, he's there. um I think he's now distinguished fellow in solution architecture. Um he's he was he's been very influential in how I've been thinking about architecture being a continuous thing. I mean his method is risk and cost-driven architecture. And I think it's some years old now. I think it's probably the original incremental architecture approach, which they've used a lot at CGI with their clients and you know they have published on it on it as well. Um, to people like Chris Richardson, who you know he's he's today writes you know specifically about service-based computing, but he's constantly got interesting ideas about how you approach architectural problems. And um, Gregor Holke, um, you know his architecture elevator is such a good metaphor for what how architects in big organizations. You mentioned Miura you know, and Pierre, I mean how they have to work. You have to be we'll talk from SVPs. To developers and, and everything in between, and uh, you know you have to be able to skip floors when it's sensible to skip floors, and sometimes stop at every floor when you need to really, you know, kind of build a message or an argument. So I mean, I I, I like the way Gregor talks about making architecture real and impactful in complicated organisations. So um, uh, and of course there's a lot of. Um, academic work done, which I try and follow, I mean, the Software Engineering Institute, Cunningham, K- 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 Mellon, places like the University in Amsterdam are all, you know, doing great work. It's hard to keep up with it all. But, you know, um, when we, people like George and I write, we often try and reflect what's going on in that academic world. And, um, you know, we mentioned DDD earlier, and obviously, um, the DDD world is 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 very influential. I mean, you know, when you get into the detail of software architectures and how you're going to structure the code, I mean, that, that's very important, obviously. I mean, you've been very active in that for a long time, and um, you are a really in that field. Because Eric Evans is still there, you know, um, you know, pushing pushing the philosophy along. So, um, those are all kind of things that I I keep up with. I also try and keep up obviously with security, um, and um, I, f- I find that yeah, people like Dave Follow in the continuous delivery area. I mean, Dave's got you know tremendous foundation ideas, and he's always trying to push them along. So it's quite a range of things I try and keep on top of uh, to. to different levels of detail but those are some of the people that um i I recommend googling or or following if you can
0: i wonder um when you and simon brown meet up in person does he surf into london or do you surf out to jersey i I just wondered
1: (laughs) we normally we normally meet somewhere completely off the wall like oh okay (laughs) because we don't happen to be at the same i don't think
0: denmark has any surf so i Simon has to rush no, exactly. back to Jersey to, to get his fix, right? So.
1: Exactly. To top up, top up exactly, precisely. Um,
0: maybe just one more question. Um, so I think there are probably a lot of people that would, a lot of developers who would like to aspire to be a CTO or, or um, uh, chief architects you know, staying in more of the technical and practice area, how do they do that? How do they go about uh, pursuing that kind of career?
1: That's that's a great question, yes. Um, it's something actually we're thinking about a lot at Indar at the moment, because we have quite a few senior technical people, but we want to, we're so, so keen that people feel that there's no pressure to step off the technical career path or to a management career path, which it's very easy to you can give people an impression because you tend to end up with quite a lot of senior management people you need senior technical people as well um the kind of things i point out to people are that remember that you need to be really senior to be really technical but not uh those aren't in opposition i mean you should be able to do both but if you're going to be really senior on a technical career path you have to be prepared to Take on a few skills that perhaps you didn't need so much earlier in your career, and that's things like breadth and flexibility, being prepared to step outside the technologies and the stack and the particular problem sets that you know and love, and go and look at other things, possibly quite quickly, understand how to grasp the essentials of them. Second one is communication. You are going to have to influence and explain things to other people. So your communication skills are really important. And many of us are not natural communicators. And it's a long road to go from relatively quiet, relatively introverted technical expert to really senior technical expert who can talk to a group of people, explain something, make sure that everyone understands it, get consensus and, you know, make a decision that way. So that, that's a set of softer skills you need. Um, my first mentor, I was tremendously lucky to have, a woman called Kim Lumber, um, who's uh, my first employer. But um, she um, and I was at that point very technical and not very good at communicating. I didn't want to do anything to do with management. I was quite clear on that with her, uh, except that she, over two years, patiently worked with me to kind of explain to me and show me that you may not manage people, but you need management skills. That's what being senior is. Because if you can't influence, if you can't lead, if you can't inspire, if you can't plan, you can't. it's very hard to have the kind of impact that you would expect to have as a senior technical person. So don't always shut off those soft skills and management skills. Just focus them on how you influence rather than how you direct and command, which is more what traditional managers do. And the other thing I always try and point out to people is that... When you're a technical specialist, it's very easy to be very, very focused on the details of the specific technologies that you know and probably love. And that's fine. You should know them because you're an expert. But always try and step back and work out what the fundamental essentials of the technology you're using are. What makes it good or bad for something? Because it's it's not good for everything. Nothing is. So what makes it good or bad? What are its essential characteristics? And then learn how to compare and contrast that with other technologies. Because it's understanding, I think, the fundamental mechanisms rather than all the details of one mechanism is often the skill you need, as Gregor would put it, as you ride the elevator up the organisation. So I think it's, you know, understanding fundamentals, you know, understanding how to assess and evaluate things and making sure that you get a breadth of skill, both technically and also in terms of dealing with people, is are some of the aspects of how you become successful on a technical career path
0: yeah and definitely like Gregor says you know riding the elevator and being in the boardroom um is you know or or what does he call it is it the penthouse the the engine room to the penthouse (laughs) um yeah that that's a big shift you know when you think about the mindset that um technology people have, and then, you know, way up the elevator, so to speak, you know, those mindsets are thinking very differently, although hopefully, in a digital transformation fashion, right, where they're, they're very serious about it. But so, um, yeah, the communication skills are so important, and um, very good advice. Thank you. So it's been very nice talking to you. I think we said we'd try to keep this at 45 to 50 minutes. I think maybe we succeeded. So um, look forward to to having a conversation with you in the future and uh, learning how the, the book is going and readers, you know, adopters of your ideas. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks for the invitation. That was great fun. If you
0: enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.